Back when I was 15 years old, there was a rock group that was coming to Austin, Texas. I lived in this little suburb called Round Rock, and I wanted to go and be a part of this experience. And back in the day, a 15-year-old had a little bit harder time getting tickets than we do today. We can't just open up our phone because we didn't have those back then. And I had to find out who had tickets, and they sold out really fast. And a friend of mine said that this one particular individual at our school had tickets. And I didn't know this individual, but I knew where he hung out um, ahead of school. And I was in this group known as the Jocks. I know that doesn't surprise you by looking at me today. But I played baseball, and that was my group that I ran around with. He was a part of a group that we labeled the Stoners. And I went to him and uh, introduced myself and said, hey, I heard you have tickets to this rock band, and I'd be interested in buying a couple if you wanted to sell them. And so he's like, sure, here's the price. And I brought my money, so we made the exchange there. And he said, uh, just out of the blue, he's like, do you do drugs? And I was like, of course, everybody does drugs, right? And he's like, good, we're going to bring some to this concert. And so I walked away, and from that moment till the actual time of the concert, I was living in dread because I hadn't done drugs at that point in my life. And if I had done drugs at this concert, my parents would kill me. But more than that, I would disappoint them. And I didn't want to do that. And I would be kicked off the baseball team if my coach found out about it. So I was living in a measure of anxiety because I didn't know what I would do. And I finally came up with a strategy that I didn't even know what they would have. But if they offered it to me, I would just pretend to do whatever everyone else was doing. And I would quickly just move on. And as it turned out, um, I was in the group of, in the middle of this group of stoners, and me and my jock friend. And, uh, and of course, all the drugs came out, and people were doing them, but they didn't offer us any. So I escaped <laughs> with uh, my life intact that night. But in that moment, I was enslaved to the fear of what other people thought of me. I wanted to be seen as cool, so of course I would do drugs that they were offered to me. And yet, I lived in fear of that experience, disappointing my parents, of potentially getting kicked off the baseball team. And I didn't want that, but I didn't know what to do. But my life was ruled with fear. There's a book called When People Are Big and God is Small. And in it, the author Ed Welch writes these words. There is an epidemic of the soul called, in biblical language, the fear of man. Fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. If you would have asked my 15-year-old self, do you fear other people's opinion of you? I would have said, of course not. I don't care. But it ruled me. I wanted to be seen as cool. I wanted to be seen as in. I wanted to get the T-shirt so people would say, hey, man, that guy, he's happening. And this is what I know about you. You most likely struggle with the fear of what other people think as well. It may not be ever-present in your mind, but we do live in many ways for other people's opinion, to be thought well of, to be spoken highly, maybe even to be famous. We're going to borrow the title of that book and use it for our title of our message today, When People Are Big and God Is Small. And we're going to look at some life-changing wisdom from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And it's found in a passage when he's speaking directly to his disciples. Just the context of this passage comes on the heels of Jesus just lighting up the religious leaders. He entered in this prophetic mode and spoke woe after woe to them, trying to awaken them, to alert them to the spiritual danger that they were on. And that journey that they were 
going on was not going to end well if they didn't turn. And so we're told in verse 1, this is what we studied last week, I'm just going to read it to give us the context. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So Jesus has just left this confrontation with the religious leaders of his day. And the crowds are pressing in. And on his mind is an essential truth he wants to get across to his disciples. Beware of hypocrisy. I don't want my followers to be like those religious leaders. And he goes on in verse 2 and says, Nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Jesus says that we may think that we're fooling God, but at the end of the day, nothing is hidden from him. And so we walked away this week, uh, last week with this lesson. Hypocrisy is the gap between what people see and the real me. And so that, that study is up online. If you didn't get a chance to, to listen to that, uh, let me encourage you to go back and visit. I think it's one of those, those lessons that, that needs to be heard. Last week after uh, our service, um, a gentleman walked up to me and said, I've been in church all my whole life, and I've never heard anyone talk about this issue of hypocrisy. This was something that was on Jesus' mind, and he wanted something different for his disciples. And so that's the immediate context. And then Jesus keeps speaking to him, and this is what it says in verse 4, our text for today. I tell you, my friends, and before we see what Jesus said, let's just stop for a second. Jesus, in this moment, he, he's talking to his disciples, not the crowds. He's talking to his disciples, and he says to them, my friends. I wonder how this stirred the disciples' soul in the moment. Remember, they were disciples, and Jesus was the rabbi, the master. They were his servants, if anything, his students. But in this moment of seriousness, of importance, he leans into them and says, I tell you, my friends. Ah, what would it have been like to have been one of the people that Jesus called his friends? I mean, in one sense, Jesus was friends with uh, just everyone he came across. We're told, for example, these words by um, Jesus recorded for us in this Gospel of Luke. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is what the religious leaders were, were accusing Jesus of. And they thought probably one of the worst things they could call him was a, a friend of sinners. But Jesus, as we're told in the Gospel of John, loved people. And he especially loved his disciples. And he told them on the night that he was betrayed, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so I wonder if in that moment, but Jesus had his disciples around him, and he leans in and says, I tell you, my friends, that their soul must have been bullied and encouraged. Jesus is calling me his friend. This is what he says to them. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they, than they can do. <laughs> I don't know that that's exactly what they were thinking was coming next. <laughs> He had just gone off on the religious leaders. He had warned them of hypocrisy. And he says to them, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. <laughs> the way I think normally, I think in memes and little gifts. And this 
gif that you probably have seen before came to my mind. And disciples are leaning in there and maybe have a smile on their face. And then all of a sudden, you know, Jesus talks about not fearing those who kill the body. I think this would have been my reaction listening to what Jesus said. So let's unpack a little bit of what he's saying. Do not fear those who kill the body. If I had been there in that moment, I would have said, Jesus, this is pretty much my biggest fear. <laughs> you know, they might uh, say bad things about me, but when it gets violent, when they, when they want to hurt me deeply and kill me, okay, I have issues with people who want to do that. That is, that is a fear that I have. And I think Jesus knows that because he says, well, don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. And Jesus thinking, sure, they might kill your body, but then what? What can they do to you after they've done that? And so Jesus is tapping into something here deeper that they need to be able to enter into. I like the way that Eugene Peterson put it in his paraphrase of the scriptures called The Message. Using this passage, he paraphrases it like this. I'm speaking to you as dear friends. Don't be bluffed into silence or insincerity by the threats of religious bullies. True, they can kill you, but then what can they do? Jesus knows that there are some trying days ahead, not only for him, but for his disciples. In this confrontation with the religious leaders that I was just mentioning, Jesus talked about how they are the sons of those who killed the prophets. And Jesus has told his disciples over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be beaten, and I'm going to be handed over to be killed. So Jesus is beginning to do some deeper work in his followers, and he doesn't want them to fear those who can kill the body. But that's a big, huge thing. He's not minimizing it. He's just saying the worst they can do to you is to kill your body. But if they do that, then what else can they do? And then he says this in verse 5, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, I don't know about you, but I imagine that there's some people who hear this, and there are red flags all over this sentence Jesus just said. I want to maybe just address a couple of them. Jesus says, I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So three times in this one verse, Jesus talks about fear. So someone, I imagine, raises this objection. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm thinking fear in general is not a healthy thing. So I don't get what Jesus is saying here. Maybe you're thinking, I already have enough fear in my life. I don't know why I should fear God on top of all the other fears I deal with. I think that this word hits us in a different way than it would have hit his original disciples who had been steeped in the tradition of the Hebrew scriptures. Let me just pull up one passage that helps expand and explain exactly what this is. This is from the book of Psalms, verse 33. It says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And this is from the book of Psalms, and this is Hebrew poetry. And the way Hebrew poetry typically works is, for example, in the, the first stanza, you would have a statement. And then the second one either parallels it, contradicts it, or it can expand and explain it. And that's exactly what we have going on here. It's expanding and explaining. So when it says, let all the earth fear the Lord, what does that mean? 
It means to let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. According to the writers of the Hebrew scriptures, people should stand in awe of the creator. I mean, after all, he made us. He gave us life and breath and everything else. And so we should have an awe that is at the core of our life for this being who brought us into existence and, as we're told, loves us and cares for us. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Joy of Fearing God, which I think is the the best statement on this issue, the best treatment on this issue I've ever read, he said, a profound sense of awe toward God is undoubtedly the dominant element in the attitude or set of emotions that the Bible calls the fear of God. Now, uh, Miss Grace was telling me not too long ago that she's been reading uh, the... uh, children's series called The Chronicles of Narnia, which of course features Aslan, this great lion. Blaze has told me that as well, and even Dr. Long told me he's appreciated reading through those again, so it has a a broad appeal. And there's this wonderful passage, I've I've shared this with some of you before, in which uh, the, the children, let me go back one screen here, the children are at Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house, and they're talking about how Aslan is on the move, And, of course, one of the children, Lucy, hadn't even heard of Aslan. And so uh, this story about this great lion who's coming uh, makes her a little bit nervous. And so she asks this question, which you can see a child asking if someone says there's a lion coming. She says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, Derry, and no mistake said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's such a beautiful passage, and perhaps I think one of the best illustrations of what the the Scripture is getting at when it talks about the fear of of God, the awe of God that we should have. God is not a tame lion, so to speak. He has all power and all authority, and we shouldn't trifle with that. But he's good. He's loving. He's the king of all the earth. And so if we understand the scriptural understanding of the fear of the Lord, we understand what the book of Proverbs says when it says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. So we center our lives upon God, our creator. We stand in awe of him. We stand amazed. That becomes a life-giving thing. And so there's there's another objection that probably raises in some people's minds in the middle of this verse. When Jesus says, fear him, who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. And someone says, now, this is my biggest objection against Christianity. I could never believe in a God who would send people to hell. And let me just say, this is a weighty topic. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we need to get right what Jesus is teaching on that. Because there's a whole lot of stuff that has grown up around this, I believe, that is not healthy. And there's so many caricatures of this teaching out there that are just plain upside down and wrong. This is important because as we live in this culture that is increasingly more secular, a lot of people are going to raise this objection. 
And if you're a follower of Jesus, they might ask you, how do you explain this? Or, or those of us who loved, uh, have lost loved ones and we're just not sure what this thing about hell means and it makes us really nervous and we have questions that, that come to our mind and this is not pleasant at all to think about. And so let's lean in for a moment and, and think about what is being said here. Jesus talks about a place called hell. Now for us, we have certain imagery around that. But I want to ask you just to put that on hold for a moment and let's go back in time to the time of Jesus to understand what this word meant at that time. The English word hell, translated for us in this translation as hell, is actually from the Greek word Gehenna. And to understand that Greek word Gehenna, we need to understand the, the geography around Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the holy city. It was seen by the Hebrews as the epicenter of God's coming kingdom. And outside the city walls was this valley that had a notorious history. And that valley went by the name of Gehenna. So we need to understand the circumstances around that valley to understand what Jesus is talking about here. If we go back into the Hebrew scriptures at a time when the people of God were just so increasingly evil that God sent one prophet after another. And through the prophet of Jeremiah, God said this, they have built the high places of Topheth, which means the place of fire, which is the valley of the son of Hanam. Hanam is the Hebrew word for uh, Gehenna, which is the word that Jesus used. And so the people of God went out to this valley outside of Jerusalem. They built these places of fire. And they did this to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which God says, I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. So get what's going on. The people of God are leaving the walls of Jerusalem, going outside the city into this valley. And there they erected the gods of the nations around them. And they would sacrifice their own children to these gods, these places of fire that they had stoked. And so when we think about the geography of heaven and hell at the time of Jesus, when we think of heaven and hell, we think almost immediately of the afterlife. And there is a place to think on that. But immediately what Jesus is referring to is this place outside of Jerusalem. So if Jerusalem means the shalom of God where God wants to dwell with his people, where he wants there to be human flourishing and peace and love, then outside of that, in the valley, is the place of Gehenna. That's outside the city. And that's seen as everything that's antithetical to what Jerusalem represented. And Jerusalem... It's going to, the scriptures are going to use the phrase the new Jerusalem to describe heaven coming down to earth when God makes everything new. But when Jesus talks about the one who has authority to cast someone into hell, Jesus is speaking in a way to help them understand if Jerusalem, the city on the hill, is the epicenter of God's kingdom, God has the right to cast people outside of his kingdom who refuses love who don't want acceptance and forgiveness from God, who don't want to leave their ways behind. And let me see if I can use a modern illustration that helps us understand a little bit of what's going on here. Almost all of us, I'm sure, know the name Larry Nassar. He was the serial predator who was the U.S. gymnast, um, USA gymnast team doctor and also professor 
at Michigan State University. And he had assaulted at least 265 girls, young women who had been entrusted to his care as a team doctor. And Rachel Dahlenhander was the first to bring her accusation of what happened. And in her wake, all these other people that she had no idea came forward and said, he assaulted me as well. So 200 testified in court. He was sentenced to 60 years in federal prison, 175 in state prison, and another 40 to 125 years in 2018. We as a society have a way to take someone and to separate them from the rest of society so they can no longer hurt or harm. And so these were the sentences that were issued against this man. And even at his sentencing, one of the judges said this, I am not convinced that you truly understand that what you did was wrong and the devastating impact you had on the victims, the family, and friends. To use biblical language, as the Apostle Paul would, there is no fear of God in his eyes. And so God has the right when he brings his kingdom, when he makes this world new, to cast outside of his kingdom all those who refuse his love and his offer of forgiveness. As Isaiah the prophet put it, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God has promised that there will be a day, a day to come, when uh, the holy mountain here in this passage just simply refers to Jerusalem, the epicenter of God's kingdom, that there would be a day, and oh, that God would speed that day, when there'd be no more violence, no more predation, no more oppression, no more lying, no more stealing, no more murder. There will come a day when God says, enough. And so Jesus is directing his disciples' view towards the God who's going to restore all things. And someone says, but I still don't like the thought of God casting someone into hell. And let me just say, I'm glad you don't like that idea. If that made you giddy, we would need to have some conversations. <laughs> we should be overcome with compassion and a sense of urgency to talk to people about this issue. God himself, I think we can say, doesn't take pleasure in it. Through the prophet of Ezekiel, he said this, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? God doesn't want to condemn people outside his kingdom. That's why he called Israel into existence. That's why he sent his son Jesus to extend the offer of his grace and forgiveness to all who would have it. But some people will refuse that to their dying day. Rachel Denhollander, who is the attorney and the, the former gymnast who was molested by this team doctor, she spoke in court at the sentencing. And I tell you, I don't know if you heard this or not, but she was one brave woman. I cannot imagine the courage she had to summon to be able to stand in the same room with this monster and have a final word to say to him. Part of what she said to him revolved around an image of him that he, he began to project. When he would walk into the courtroom, he would have his copy of a Bible with him. Don't know if he is reading it. Don't know if he is using it as a prop to, to engender sympathy. But he was carrying that in there. So Rachel used that prop as a way of speaking her final words. And she said to him, 
If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. But Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you've seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble. And you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment will all God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Wow. What powerful words she spoke in that moment to a man who did so much harm. She called him to face it, but she also called him to embrace the good news that flows in the wake of us embracing it. But what if Nassar doesn't want it? What if he would rather live with the, the wicked thrill of what he has done and enjoy that the rest of his life? Fortunately, we've, we've put him away so he cannot prey on girls anymore. But what if he doesn't? Jesus says there's a place for those who refuse God's love and grace. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, put it like this. He said, hell then is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on and on forever. Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into eternity. Friends, the scriptures tell us that we are immortal beings, that life does not end with the death of our physical bodies. That's actually what Jesus is getting behind in these instructions to his disciples. But let's make no mistake about it. Nobody talked about this issue of hell more than Jesus. And the question we should ask is why? Why was this something that Jesus wanted people to understand? Why is this something that he wanted his disciples to get straight? Well, I think part of the answer to that question is because he knew that he would experience it himself. There would come a day when those religious leaders will conspire with the Roman authorities to put him to death. And Jesus knew this was going to happen. And he already told the Heavenly Father that when this happens, I want the weight of the sins of my people placed upon me so their sins can be condemned in my flesh, so that we can deal with evil in them without destroying them. Jesus, on that cross, when darkness covered the land in the middle of the day, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, 
the eternal Son of God, bore the crushing weight of what people like you and me have done in our life. And he experienced hell, separation from God. Keller once again put it like this, without the suffering of Jesus, evil wins. It results in the destruction of the human race. It is only Jesus' suffering that makes it possible to end suffering, to judge and renew the world without having to destroy us. And that's so true. C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford professor, one-time atheist who became a follower of Jesus, wrestled with this question himself and wrestled with other people through this question. And he at one place wrote these words. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell itself is the question, what are you asking God to do? To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. He says, there are two kinds of people, those who say, thy will be done to God, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Jesus doesn't want his followers to be so afraid of what other people think of them, or even the threat of bodily harm to keep them from following him. And so he says, there's something else I want you to fear, someone else. Then he says this, which, how do you make sense of what he says here with what he just said? He says, verse 6, are not five uh, sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the number, I'm not sorry, why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Do you get what Jesus is saying here? On the one hand, he says, don't fear those who can only kill your body and then after that can't do anything else to you. Rather, fear God. He has the authority to cast folks out of his kingdom. And then now he tells them to not fear. Because the God who created you loves you and he cares for you and you are more valuable than sparrows which are just sold by pennies. He, he even has the numbers of your head, hairs on your head, <laughs> numbered. He knows those things about us. And so I think what he's doing here is he's moving his, his disciples along a continuum. And this is from that book, When People Are Big and God is Small. And here Ed Welch talks about the fear of the Lord being this continuum where on the one hand we can, we can hide from God's power and holiness, or think we can, and we're just existing in this place of terror and dread. And what Jesus does is he's wanting his disciples to draw near to this God who loves them, and he wants them to have God at the center of their thinking and their being. Remember, I know there's a lot that we talked about here, but this is what Jesus is concerned about. He says to his disciples in the heart of the passage we're looking at, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do to you. Jesus wants them to be set on a different foundation than what other people can say or think about them. Now, in the Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling has this scene where the wise Dumbledore, the beloved professor of Hogwarts, has this confrontation with the evil Lord Voldemort. And in this confrontation, Voldemort says, there is nothing worse than death. To which Dumbledore responds by saying, Indeed, your failure to understand that there are things much worse than death has always been your greatest weakness. 
Jesus is, in a sense, I think, telling his disciples, there are some things worse than death. And don't let that be a weakness. But remember what happened to Peter, one of his beloved disciples. Uh, as they are heading into this final moments of, of Jesus' life, Jesus said to Simon, Simon, Peter, this is Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Can you imagine if you were standing in Peter's sandals at that moment and Jesus says to you, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but, but don't worry, I've prayed for you. <laughs> I think I would have been like, you said he could? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what I think about that. <laughs> But he says, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And Peter says to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. There's a fear of those who can kill the body at work in Peter. And Jesus knows it. Even though he, he's warned him about it, that it's coming, even though he's prayed for Peter in this moment of trial and testing, but Peter is going to run when they come for Jesus. And so let me just stop and ask this question, my friends, as we kind of begin to wrap this up here. Where in your life does the fear of what others might think or do to you because you follow Jesus loom too large in your life? I struggle with how to, to, uh, to phrase this question because I don't want just to think of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fearful that I might get in a car crash today and I'm afraid of death that way. No, where does the fear of what other people think of you or what they might say to you loom too large because you are following Jesus? That fear is the fear of man and that's what Jesus wants us to deal with. And I mentioned that Peter ran when the... Soldiers came for him. All his disciples ran and fled like scared little children. And it wasn't until the resurrection of Jesus, after they saw the worst that people can do to Jesus happen, the killing of his body, and then they saw Jesus come back from the dead, that they were turned into fearless proclaimers of the message of Jesus. Can you imagine this person that you just gave three years of your life following and investing in? learning everything he had to say. You see him brutally nailed to a cross. And you're running and hiding because if they find you, part of his gang, they're going to nail you to that cross as well. And then you see Jesus come back from the dead. Oh, this Jesus is what you meant when you said, don't fear those who can kill the body. And after that, have nothing more. Life goes on. Resurrection life goes on. And so what you find is the disciples of Jesus going out into the world saying, look, we've seen Jesus risen from the dead. Repent and put your trust in him. Give your allegiance to Christ. And they did this in the face of kings. And some of them, in fact, tradition from church history tells us all but the apostle John paid for it with their life. Now what transformed these people <laughs> from fearless children running for their lives to fearless proclaimers of the the gospel of Jesus, something happened within them that clicked. The worst they can do to me is kill my body. But after that, they can't do anything else to me. My life is hidden with God in Christ, and he will raise me again. Keller one more time said, if I have the smile of God, all other frowns are inconsequential. 
I love that. Let me end with a, a story from the life of John G. Patton. Um, he was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. And before he went, about 20, less than 20 years before he went, the first outsiders, they were missionaries from the, from the London Missionary Society, John Williams and James Harris, went to this place that the world had just recently discovered, didn't know there was a, a civilization living there. But the thing is, is this was a civilization, a civilization of, of cannibals. And so the first missionaries went to bring them the gospel of Jesus. And the ship dropped them off on shore, and the little rowboat went back. And within minutes of them arriving, they were killed and eaten by these cannibals living on this island. And John Patton, when he heard about this, said this, Thus were the New Hebrides baptized with the blood of martyrs, and Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he claimed these islands as his own. Patton saw the shedding of blood, not only by Jesus, but now by Jesus' people upon this island to bring them good news, to seek to bring these people into a new way of being human by following Jesus, was now motivated himself to go to that very island where the previous people went and were eaten. And when Patton was announcing his intentions to serve the New Hebrides Islands as a missionary, an elderly Mr. Dixon protested, the cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. And Patton responded by saying, Mr. Dixon, you are now advanced in, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our Redeemer of our, of, our, of our risen Redeemer. And so Patton went to this island, and he stepped on the shore, and he did not get eaten. He went with his wife, who at the time was seven months pregnant, and she gave birth to a child who, who died very quickly, and then his wife died a few days later. And here he is on this island where he had given up everything to go serve these people, to tell them about Jesus and his beloved wife and his newborn child now are dead. And he has to sit on their graves at night so that the cannibals don't come and dig up their bodies. And yet he persevered. He ended up uh, focusing his, his attention to the island of Aniwa. And because of his fearless courage, the island came to know Christ. And he would later write, I have claimed Aniwa for Jesus. And by the grace of God, Aniwa now worships at the Savior's feet. Indeed, some 12,000 cannibals renounced their way of life and stepped into following Jesus in a new way of being human. All because Patton was willing to risk everything for him. Sure, they might kill him, but after that, what can they do? The scriptures say, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do.